by your son on the cross that we might uh, be clean. <coughs> we know, Lord God, that um, you are gracious and you are compassionate and that you forgive us of our sins and continually cleanse us of our sins. May we now, Father, sit without any condemnation, knowing that we are free, knowing that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and that we are clear. So may we receive your word, and may it be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, may our ears be sensitive to what your Holy Spirit wants to say. I pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said Amen. Please greet somebody somehow. All right, if you have your Bibles with you guys, open to the book of Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. my honor to be teaching the Word of God tonight. This is the greatest joy of my life, next to taking walks on the beach with my wife, <clears throat> which would be great if we had a beach. <laughs> Got the sand, but not the beach, right? Not the beach. I heard it's supposed to be 117 tomorrow. Yeah. All right. You guys are tough, right? You can handle it. You're Arizonians. Arizonans. All right. Um, my title of the teaching tonight is Secure in the Word and Firm in the Beatdown. Firm in the Beatdown. Does that sound a little derogatory? You ever felt like you've been beat down during the day? Yeah. Um, what's happening here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to be verses in verses 13 through 16 is the church in Thessalonica is under persecution. Um, it doesn't seem that it is severe enough where people are fearing for their lives necessarily, but they are taking heat. They are taking heat. Um, I can only imagine what it would be like to live in that uh, zone up in Seattle where the um, Antifa and protesters have sort of co-opted it to their own country, as it were. Not uh, really feeling life-threatened, maybe, but very insecure, huh? Very insecure. If you happen to be the wrong person dressed in the wrong hat, walking down the wrong street, you very much could get accosted. And we've seen the news, we've seen the beatings, we've seen the places being looted, we've seen the fires being set, and we've seen people, I think, like I said, being accosted, you know, on the streets. And, and who would have ever thought in my generation that this would be becoming the norm across the country, across the country? Praise God that we are, we're cool here in Arizona right now. But that doesn't mean that, that can't change at any moment. So if and when that comes, 
there are two things that you need. You need to be secure in the word so that you can stand firm in the beatdown. That's the point of this. And that's what Paul is teaching the Thessalonians here. He is teaching them that you need to be secure in the word. It is the only thing that is going to get you through the beatdown times. The beatdown times. Um, I don't think any of us ever thought in our lifetime we would ever see persecution really break out in the United States of America. But if you're looking and paying attention to the news, you realize that it could be. It really could be. Um, just a hundred days away. Just a hundred days away. So keep in mind um, that this persecution that is going on in Thessalonica is being encouraged by Jewish unbelievers. In other words, it's an outside source coming in, agitating things. Just like we see in our own country today, uh, an outside source agitating things in the streets of our cities where there's peaceful, legitimate protests going on and taking advantage of the situation and turning it into something that is um, scary and fearful. But the funny thing about all of this is, is that Jesus promised that it would happen, didn't he? Yeah, in John 15. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you even more. It's a paraphrase, but it's close. It's just, there will be persecution. Now, we're not, again, worldwide standards of persecution, we're not anywhere near to being afraid for our life and letting people know that we are Christians. We still have constitutional rights and we do have, as far as I can tell, the, the majority of the population on our sides to express ourselves. But Jesus said it would happen. So let's look at about standing secure in the word in verse 13. Paul now, he's just gotten through, remember, last week, defending his apostleship because of the uh, rumors that were going around about him being a little tyrant, running out, being a coward, and a few other things, and he, he put that all to rest. And now he says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. What reason? Because when you received the word of God, which you, you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth. The word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Paul says that when you received the message from us, the gospel, you didn't think of our words as just mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which it is, of course. And that's why he gives thanks to God, that he, they've received it as the word of God. It's sort of like Jesus when he said to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but you've had a revelation from the Father. And it immediately went to his head, remember? Paul earnestly believed and taught others that God had spoken to man and that we have the record and we have recorded this word of God. 
He believed in a voice that speaks to mankind with the authority of eternity. He believed in a voice that speaks to mankind with the authority of eternity and speaks above mere human opinion. In our culture today, in our postmodern society, we boil everything down to only your opinion, you know, and my opinion. And then if you take it any further, then we realize that there's only one opinion, and that's my opinion. And you need to either change your opinion or just zip it. Paul believed that this was the word of God. And since we do have this word, then we have a true voice of authority. We're going to talk more about that on Sunday as we look at the finger of God as it writes down ten simple rules for all of civilization for people to get along. There are those who say, I believe that the Bible is inspired and that it contains God's word, but I don't believe that it is the word of God. See the difference? That if you read through the Bible, you will find God's word in there somewhere. But it's pretty much up to you to decide what it is and what it isn't. I haven't read Thomas Jefferson's Bible, but I heard that there's a lot of editing he had done in it, cutting a lot of pages out and verses and those things. Because he just couldn't couldn't believe it. And of course, um, you know, we know Larry back here, he's done the same thing. He's cut his Bible. I love you, Larry. Don't kill me. Don't turn me off either. <laughs> and if you compare his Bible, yeah, thank you, buddy. <laughs> I deserve that, yeah. Fantastic. If we compared that with Thomas's, we might find that uh, you guys don't agree on what is and what shouldn't be in the Bible. Well, Paul is saying here the Bible doesn't contain God's word. It is God's word. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. Whenever liberal theologians say the Bible contains God's word, the implication is that it might also contain just men's word. If I say part of scripture is God's word, but part is man's word, then um, the question begs itself, which part is which? And who gets to decide? And then pretty soon I am judging God's word. If I attribute to God that Romans 8.1 is true. That's really God's word, that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, Philippians 4.23. Um, but when Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and in 2 Timothy 3.12, where he says, those who live godly will suffer persecution. And I say, no, that's not the word of God. Then I'm setting myself up as the Bible's judge. Okay. Dave Guzik said, if we cannot know what God has spoken, then he may as well have not spoken at all. Because it's, it's you know, anybody's guess and do what's right in your own eyes. Can you prove its authority? Absolutely. Several ways. First off, the Bible is more of a library than a single book. You guys all know that, right? So I'm preaching to the choir here. It's like a no, it's not like a single book, like a novel, you know, written from beginning to end and from 
one city. It was written on three different continents in over 1600 years to compile, and it was written in three languages. And it has literary reliability. Um, you've heard of, of writers, ancient writers like Homer, the, the, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Her, um, <clears throat> Herodotus, Sophocles, Plato, Caesar, Livy, Tacitus, Pliny, um, Demosthenes, I can't even say those words. You add up all of the ancient manuscripts, this is how they compare um, what is to be taught on college campuses, whether it's reliable or authentic or not. Um, you write up all the ancient manuscripts that we have of them and you match the, nobody has the originals by the way, you know that right? There are no originals of these writings. We only have copies, that's called a manuscript. And the further the distance away the manuscript is as far as time goes to the original, of course, the less reliable it would be. So the shorter the span of time that you have a copy of it, the more reliable it might be. And what you do is you compare all of your copies to get a sense, did that writer actually write those words? Now if you add up all of those authors that I mispronounced and you compare them all, they have a total of 3,357 manuscripts to compare. The New Testament alone, just one single compilation of writings has over 5,795 manuscripts to compare. And then when you put it all together, you have over 24,000 bits of manuscripts and manuscripts to compare. Uh, now we've got 5,000 solid manuscripts and then we've got all bits of, of pieces around. Now, so overwhelmingly the New Testament qualifies then as being literarily reliable. The shortest gap between original and the first manuscript of the writers I mentioned before is 200 years. And that was um, a guy by the name of, uh, yeah, T-H-U-C-Y-D-I-D-E-S. You try it. I did put that little thing on it in, in Google, you know, where it tells you how to pronounce it, and I said it about 10 or 15 times, but now I'm just totally freaking out because I always screw this up. So anyway, the shortest gap between the original and the first manuscript of Mr. T there is 200 years. First manuscript, the earliest manuscript you have between the original writings and the first copy of the New Testament is only 40 years. So it makes it much more reliable, okay? So it has literary reliability. It has internal unity. It's a coherent theme all the way throughout. From Genesis to Revelation, the theme of the whole Bible is Jesus Christ. And you see him over and over and over and over again. Um, I can suggest a book to you, it's by Henry Edemirs. It's called The Overview of the Bible, and where she points out everywhere Jesus is seen in the Old Testament and in 
and how that makes it uh, a coherent theme. There's a lot of people who think there are, are contradictions in the Bible, and I've seen their contradictions. And if you say that they are supposed contradictions, they get very angry with you. But if, you, if it's a seeming contradiction and it can be cleared up or explained, then it's not a contradiction, is it? Okay, and I haven't found out one of the so-called contradictions not being able to have a reasonable explanation. It has archaeological validity. Um, they've never made an archaeological discovery that contradicts the Bible, uh, but they've made many, many discoveries that actually validated it. Uh, for the longest time, there was a, uh, a group of people they said never existed. And I'm trying to remember the name of that group of people. And it wasn't just about uh, 50 or 60 years ago they uncovered some stones with that group of people's name literally on it. Um, so there's archaeological validity. But the one that I really want to point to is the prophetic reliability. So let's just take the, the, the prophecies concerning Christ, okay? There are 221 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. Chapter 7 of Isaiah tells us the manner of his birth. Daniel chapter 9 declares the time of his birth. Micah chapter 5 names the town of his birth. And in Zechariah 11, we read how he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, which would be thrown to the floor of the temple and used to purchase a piece of property that would be used as a potter's field. Now we know exactly that that's exactly what happened. Um, in the Gospels. Now you take the statistical probability of those six prophecies, and that's just six, you have one into the 10 to the 17th power of it being done. Is that a lot? Yeah, that's a lot. If you cover the entire state of California three feet deep in nuts, it might already be. <laughs> I didn't say that. And you mark one nut with an X. Then you take your pet squirrel, Rocky, and you fly above the state of California. And at some point, you just throw him out of the plate, okay? But he's a flying squirrel, so you got no problem. He comes down, he sees the whole state covered in nuts and chooses one. The chances that he chose the marked nut is 10 to the 17th power. And you already know in your mind that <laughs> probably not going to happen. But that's only six of the prophecies made about Jesus Christ that were fulfilled. There are 221 Old Testament prophecies that were perfectly fulfilled in Christ. And then you have what I think is the greatest evidence, and that's the evidence of transformed lives. Peoples whose lives have changed. Paul says, for this reason, in, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men. That word received. The first word received in that sentence is the Greek word 
paralambano, which means to embrace intellectually. Okay? You come to the place where you make a rational decision that this is the truth, that it is what it says it is, and I believe it. And then he says, the second half of that uh, verse, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Now that word welcome, if you have a King James Version, is translated the word received, just like it was in the beginning of that verse. And the word for welcome there, the Greek word for welcome there, means to embrace emotionally. So you have one word received to embrace intellectually, and then you have the second word, meaning to embrace it with your heart, to embrace it emotionally, okay? Now, hang in there with me, don't, don't let me lose you. He says, um, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, um, I am missing, <laughs> missing a verse. All right. All right, let's just, let's just skip it, okay? <laughs> this is going to be one of those nights. Where the word is believed and received, as the word of God, there it has this energy to promote love, repentance, self-denial, mortification, comfort, and peace. That's Albert Poole. That's his comment. Philippians 2.13 says this, it is God who works in you, energizes you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that word works means to energize. It's where we get our word energy from. Energeo is the, is the Greek word for it. And it means it energizes you. Okay? The powerful working of God is usually expressed by that word, energeo. And when the believers in Thessalonica embrace the word intellectually and emotionally, it effectively worked in them who believed. It energized in them. It energizes the believer's desire and the power to please him. And that's why it says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you, energizes you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. All right, you're going to want to keep that in mind and just tack that to the side so that you can see how it all comes together at the end. Let's look at standing firm, shall we? In verse 14 and 15. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men. When the Thessalonians responded to the gospel, they became targets of persecution. I'll give you a newsflash. When you receive Christ into your life, you put yourselves in the same camp, okay, to possibly be targets of persecution. 
but it's nothing new or shocking. Uh, the churches of God have often suffered persecution throughout all of the ages, and we were told, as I said in John 15, to expect it. But the question is, is how will you handle it? If and when it comes, how will you handle it? And I can tell you now, if you haven't really prepared your heart and mind for it, you won't handle it well. If you haven't embraced the Word of God and the energy that it has to strengthen you in the inner man, then when you get to it, um, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. It says the Thessalonian Christians, they became what? Imitators of those who had suffered before them. Now that word imitator, it means mimic or a mime. All right, how many of you hate mimes? Anybody here hate mimes? of you do okay I just you know I, I was a mind once just don't shoot me Craig okay now notice verse 14 if you look at verse 14 it says you suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans the churches that were being persecuted in Judea or Palestine were suffering it from what they called Judaizers and these were were Jews who had been converted to Christ, so to speak, but they felt like you had to first become a Jew before you could become a Christian. So that means you had to go through the rite of circumcision, ouch, and then you could become a Christian after you went that route. And of course, Paul was fighting them all, all the time. And wherever Paul would go, they would follow, and they would stir up the crowd. And persecution would break out. Now, they usually accomplished their persecuting by provoking riots. In Acts chapter 17, this says, The Jews which believed not moved with envy. And by the way, this is the founding of the church in Thessalonica. The Jews which believed not moved with envy, set all the city on an uproar. They drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, those that have turned the world upside down have come here also. Actually, they were turning the world upside right. It just, they were on the wrong side of the up and down. The same thing occurred a short time after that in Berea. In Acts 17, 13, it says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So after Paul left Thessalonica, then he went over to Berea and he began preaching at Berea and the Jews followed and they stirred up the crowds. Do you have one of those relatives that just likes to stir things up in the family? You know, especially like holidays and dinners. And they're just that person sitting at the table and they get up going on. Yeah, that's me, so don't invite me over. <laughs> But the unbelieving Jews, in Acts 14, 2, it says the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. So here's the point. The Thessalonians willingly suffered the same thing, willingly suffered the same things because they were convinced that Paul brought them not the word of man, but the word of God. Word of man just isn't worth suffering for. But a true message from God is God's word? Absolutely. 
So what is our mindset to what's going on today? If Antifa or Antifa or however you want to pronounce it, if the elites, liberals and government could have their way unfettered, what would that mean to the Christian community? I know you've thought about it. I know you have. And I know that you can see the writings on the wall. Uh, we are part of that basket of deplorables. Okay. We are those who cling to our Bibles and our guns. And I don't mean to get political. Uh, it's just the reality. It is just the reality. If by virtue of your opinions about the issue homosexuality or gender dysphoria or transsexual issues just your opinion of it and by the way of course if you have an opinion that is opposite towards being positive towards it you are already been put into a hate group it doesn't matter how many food boxes you deliver to AIDS patients it doesn't matter how many you have in your home what you hold and how you love on them you don't agree, you hate. And that's just the way it is. Um, you risk being sued, bankrupted, violently attacked, and jailed. It comes to your door, how are you gonna handle it? That's what I'm asking here. I'm not making political statements about this, I'm just saying, when it comes to your door, how are you going to handle it? I know there was one guy up in Prescott, or Prescott, excuse me. <laughs> um, who bought a whole pallet full of ammunition. So I think he was pretty well, pretty well figured out where he stands. <laughs> Would you be willing to suffer the same things as the Thessalonians did? As the Bereans did? Because you're convinced that Paul brought to us not the word of man, but the word of God. Something to, to think about. Now, um, we tend to, you know, want to protect ourselves the way the world would protect itself. But Jesus is not of the world. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. The world would gather ammunition and guns and burrow itself into the hills and get peace that way. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And he said, don't worry about those who can kill the body. Worry about him who can kill the body and destroy the soul in hell. That's what you need to be concerned about. So would you willingly suffer the same things for the word of God? Certainly you have read the stories, right? You've read the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs. You have read the stories of people who have given their lives for the book that you have in your hands. A great movie to watch is Martin Luther. Wasn't that the name of it, Luther? Yeah, and you can see the violence that happened because of a man who wanted to get the word of God into the people's hands and disagreed with the theology of the elite. And it pretty near cost him his life. It certainly cost many of his friends and loved ones life because of that. Verse 16 <clears throat> says, and this is the form of persecution that he actually had to deal with. 
And it's sort of like where we're at today. He says, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So that was the major part of the persecution was forbidding them to speak to the Gentiles. Remember, it's the Judaizers that are stirring up so that they won't have a chance to talk and share the gospel with the Gentiles because you can't be saved unless you first become a Jew. Now, Paul does say, but, you see the word but there in the middle of the verse? But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And the phrase right before that, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Okay, um, the first part, filling up the measure of their sins, that's just an idiomatic expression that they would be familiar with in the day that's kind of lost on us, it gets lost in translation. But what it basically means is they do now as they have always done, resisting God and exposing themselves to his wrath. And he's speaking of the fathers, the Jews, of going back even to where we are in Exodus right now. I mean, we're getting ready to go into a chapter where they're going to create a calf, a golden calf. They're going to already resist God. And it's going to continue on as a pattern over and over and over. And he says they're still doing it. Even today, they are still doing as they have always done. One commentator said the Jews' opposition to the work of the missionaries among the Gentiles was not due to the fact that they were seeking to win Gentiles. The Jews themselves were vigorously engaged in this period of their history in actively proselytizing Gentiles. Their fierce opposition was due to the fact that Christian missionaries offered salvation to Gentiles without demanding that they first become Jews. But then Paul says, wrath will come upon them to the uttermost. So, I mean, you can take some comfort in this if you want to, but he's assuring them that God's going to take care of the persecutors. Uh, and, and when we forget this, okay, when we forget that ultimately that those who are doing the persecuting are in God's hands, we often disgrace and curse ourselves by returning blow for blow. By, you know, like my mother used to tell us, don't get mad, get even. All right? And we mess it all up. Turn to Revelation chapter 6, please. This is sort of like at the end of the book, so you remember, um, we win. Revelation chapter 6, we have the voices of those who endured persecution. It says, they cried with a loud voice, verse 10, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God's going to do two things there, right? He's going to judge because he is the judge of all the earth, as Abraham told us back in Genesis. And he's going to avenge their blood. He's not Iron Man, he's not the Hulk. And he is not um, 
any of the avengers, but he says, vengeance is mine. Remember that? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And it's emphatically said so that you know that this is his personal property. Don't you touch it. You can't. You don't know all things like he knows all things. And even in your wrath and your anger, your vengeance isn't going to amount to much. You need to let him take care of it. Let me ask you a question here before I go any further with this. If the pain someone has caused you ultimately brings them to Christ, is it worth it? Yeah. Will you feel like it's worth it? <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. But it is. Because the pain that we brought to Christ reconciled us to God. And he said it was well worth it. But nevertheless, there are some who just will not repent. And God will judge them. And he will avenge the blood of those who were persecuted. Now look at verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. Well, who are these guys? These are the persecutors. These are the ones who have martyred those Christians. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? I find this incredible. Because all they need to do is repent. They still have an opportunity. If they will repent, they would be forgiven of their sins. It will cost them their life, yes. But their life is just about forfeited anyway. But it shows you the persistence of a stubborn, hardened heart. Doesn't matter how many chances you give the kid, he's just not going to conform. So fall on us, the mountain and the rocks. Adam Clark said their crimes were great. To these, their punishment is proportioned. In the meantime, let the Christian world treat them with humanity and mercy. Humanity and mercy. You know, that's why Jesus could say to us with a straight face in Matthew 5, 44, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That goes so contrary to our nature, which I'm glad that you noticed that because it shows you that you have an evil nature. If you're persecuted by them, you're supposed to bless them? Absolutely, because it will absolutely confuse them and disarm them. But of course, we just do this up to a point, right? I mean, there does come a point where we, we don't bless them anymore. Well, I don't know. I don't see that because uh, Jesus told Peter that you need to forgive how many times? 
seventy times seven, four hundred and ninety times, and they didn't have calculators, and he didn't have enough fingers and toes to keep up with it. And he, you know, everybody, I mean, how do you keep those records around? In Ephesians three twenty. Turn there, please. Ephesians three twenty. Here's the way that it's done. you've ever thought of this verse or these verses in this context of being able to forgive your persecutors of being able to bless those who are persecuting you would you be able to say as Stephen did forgive them they don't know what they're doing or would you pray like David break their teeth in their mouth Paul said in, in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And then there's this little doxology in Ephesians chapter 3 that says, To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works or energizes us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The amplified rendering of that verse goes like this. Now to him who, in consequence of the action of his power that is at work within us, right? The action of his power that is in work within us, that's energizing us is able to carry out his purpose and do super abundantly far above and above all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, hopes, or dreams. That's where you get it. That's the power. And it comes by your obedience to his word. It's supernatural. And it is not a feeling choice, my brothers and my sisters. It is not a feeling choice. It is absolutely a faith choice. You do it because he commanded it and you will be blessed. So what do you say to that? Look at verse 21. This is what you say to that. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay? All right. Um, let's all stand. Father, you tell us in your word that we can do all things through you, through your son, who strengthens us. And he tells us in John 15 to abide in him. 
we're apart from him, we can do nothing. We recognize that we are in some uh, strange times for us. And we recognize that we need the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives to do what is right. I ask you, Lord God, by your great mercy, by your compassion, that indeed you do abundantly, exceedingly more than what we could ever ask or think, especially when it comes to loving one another and loving our enemies. Let us not be afraid, because you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And help us to keep that Maranatha mindset. That soon we will see your son part the clouds, and either gather us up to him in the air or take us home with him, Father. So we will not fear what man can do to us because if God be for us, who could possibly be against us?